Dear congregation, as we begin this evening sermon, I want you to think back with me to some of the most awe-inspiring sights or sounds you have experienced in your lives. Maybe for you that was going to the Rocky Mountains in in Banff or in Jasper, and you stared up thousands of feet up at those peaks, And you just stood there in awe at the sight and the majesty. Or maybe you've traveled across Canada and you've been to the Niagara Falls. And you've stood there in high season as over 100,000 cubic feet of water drop over that edge every second. Or maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon. You've driven You finally arrived, you get out of the car, you walk to the edge, and you just stand there in awe at the vast emptiness in front of you. Whatever the sight, whatever the sound, whatever the experience was, can I ask you another question? How did you respond? How did you respond to that experience? Maybe some of you called out for others, come and see, come and see this sight. You have to see this. Or maybe some of you immediately pulled out your phones and you began to snap pictures or videos. Or maybe others of you just stood there, speechless, before the glory of that scene. Or maybe you just walked away and had very little reaction at all. Whatever the case, all of us sitting here this evening in this whole world are partakers of many incredible, incredible experiences. And sometimes we react rightly, don't we, to these experiences, ways that are fitting to what we experience. And sometimes we don't. But as we come to this text, this incredible chapter of Scripture, We have laid out before us a scene so full of glory, so full of majesty, that those who were standing and observing could not help but cry out in awestruck praise. This evening, I I want to walk through these first 11 verses of our chapter and, and attempt to help us wrap our minds, to wrap our hearts around the glory of the scene presented before us. Not just to make us feel awestruck, although that's part of it, but to draw us to the very center of that glory. Jesus Christ, in all of his glorious justice, in all of his glorious righteousness. Well, before we come to the text, we need to first of all talk a little bit about the context of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, children, I think you know this, comes at the very end of your Bibles. If you were following along, you will have noticed that. It's the last book. And it's the last book for a reason. The book of Revelation really acts as something of a capstone to all of the prophecies throughout all of Scripture until this time. 
In the book of Revelation, we are really led by the hand. Out to the very boundaries, if I can put it this way, of our human existence. And led to see something of the new heavens and the new earth. In glory, under the reign of Jesus Christ, our sovereign Lord. And as we sit here this evening, if we have put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if he is our rock, he is our Lord, then this book of Revelation is something like an appetizer leading us on to want more of the glory and of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But if we aren't in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're living in sin, we don't want anything of the Lordship of Christ in our lives, then this book of Revelation really stands as something of a warning sign, saying, stop, go no farther. Don't proceed in your life of sin until you have reckoned with the justice of Jesus Christ and with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So this is the book of Revelation. But here we find ourselves, don't we, in chapter 19, almost at the end of the book. And we know, of course, we can't just open any book and open two-thirds of the way in and expect to understand what's going on unless we know something of the rest of the book. So let me tell you a little bit about the rest of the book. The book of Revelation, according to various scholars and theologians, can be divided up into seven cycles, seven parallel cycles of events. And each cycle is really covering the same timeline in human history. It begins with the first coming of Jesus Christ 2,000 and some years ago. And it stretches out all the way to the final, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then off into the future. And as we come to our chapter, we are in the sixth cycle. We're in the sixth cycle of this book of Revelation. And each of the cycles, as they move on, chapters 1 through 3, chapters 4 through 7, 8 through 11, and so on, they cover the same timeline, but they tend to to grow in clarity, in glory, as they reveal this future heavens and future earth. And so we come in chapter 19 to the end of the sixth cycle. In chapters 17 and 18, John, who writes this book, has been listening and watching as the judgment of heaven is poured out upon earth. And then chapter 19, we come and we see something of the reaction Something of the reaction of heaven to the judgment of God upon the earth. So as we go through this reaction of heaven, I want to do that in three sections here this evening. The first is verses 1 through 4, and I'm titling that the first Alleluia. The second, verses 5 through 8, the second Alleluia. And lastly, verses 9 through 11, the Alleluia, worthy one. First Alleluia, the second Alleluia, the Alleluia worthy one. Well, as I've said, chapter 18, John has been watching the destruction of the enemies of God upon earth. And certainly John's mind, as it often was in the book of Revelation, was filled with awe and wonder at the things that were going on. But in chapter 19, verse 1, we see something of a transition. 
John's, John's attention is directed away from earth and, and up to heaven. And we see in verse 1 that it's not the sight of something that gets John's attention, but actually a sound. It's a sound. Look at verse 1. After these things, I heard, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. And this great voice is described in the original language by the word megas, which is what we get our word mega from. So we could describe this voice as a mega voice in heaven. This was the same people described here as we read of in Revelation 7 verse 9. There we read these words, that this multitude was a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues. So this wasn't some small crowd. This couldn't have fit in the largest stadium on this earth. There are a thousand of them. This is an uncountable crowd, not just thousands, not just hundreds of thousands, likely not just millions, likely billions or more of people in heaven shouting out towards God. And from the verse I just read in Revelation 7, we know that this isn't just one ethnicity. It's not just Dutch or Caucasian or Jewish as Christ was or Chinese or any other ethnicity. This was every people and every tongue and every tribe gathered together, focused upon Jesus Christ, the great unifier of all peoples. So this great multitude begins to shout. And you can imagine it, can't you? This many people shouting in heaven and likely John's, the ground beneath John's feet began to shake. And words begin to come into him. He begins to to hear what they're saying. And what do they say? Verse 1, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. This group of people, it's clear from the context and from this verse, had finally come into the presence of the Lord of all creation and the Savior of their souls. And they respond with this one word. Alleluia! Alleluia! Now, children, do you know what this word means? I think some of you probably do. The word alleluia comes from the Hebrew word hallelujah. And the word hallelujah is broken into two parts. The word halal, which means to shine forth like a a bright light, a spotlight. You can think of a laser and the word Yah, hallelujah, a shortened form of Jehovah. So what the people are really saying, what they're really saying is praise to our God. They're focusing, we might say, the spotlight of their being upon God in praise. Now, as we started the service, I asked you, didn't I, to think back, to think back to that most awe-inspiring moment in your life. And I asked you, what was your reaction to that experience. Well, here this crowd, this crowd has come into the presence of God himself. And it's almost as if they cannot help, they cannot help but cry out, Alleluia, Alleluia, praise to our God. They would have realized 
as they came finally into this full sight of God himself, that all the beauty that they saw on earth, the Niagara Falls, the Grand Canyon, the Rockies, the wonders of the world, were like a a dim flashlight, a dying flashlight held up to the light of the noonday sun. It was nothing. It was a broken reflection. And now they come into the presence of God himself. And they're carried away by the glory of this God. And why? Why? What's their motivation for this hallelujah? Well, look at verse 2. They give a reason, don't they? For, for, true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. So why are they praising God? Why are they praising God? It's because God has finally brought full justice to the world. The great enemy of God, the great enemy of God's people, has finally been avenged, has been dealt with. And now peace, peace can reign, not just for a year, not just for a couple centuries, but forever. And so they cry out, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now maybe we read these verses and we're thinking about this in our mind and we think, what are these people of God doing? Why are they praising God for for destroying other people? Aren't we supposed to love our enemies? And doesn't love mean that we don't rejoice in their destruction? Why are they praising God for his justice. Let me give you an example that I think will help. Some of you, and perhaps many of you, know a deal about World War II. You've studied it in school, or you've read about it, or you've watched documentaries on it, and you know something about the ethos that filled that, those countries in Europe, and also America and Canada, as that war went on. And when the year finally came, and the month finally came, where the Allied forces began to drive back the Axis powers, fortification by fortification, tank by tank, army by army. You can imagine, can't you, the joy, the joy, the peace, the the, the wonder that God had finally brought justice on these oppressors. And now these people could live in peace in a life that they dreaded they would never have again. This is something of the picture that we have here in Revelation, except on a far, far bigger scale. In fact, one day, if we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will stand with that crowd. We will stand there, and we will see the world judged, and we will praise God if we are in Christ. We will praise God for his justice. There's a tension, isn't there, today? There's a tension between our mercy, our desire to show mercy, gospel mercy towards others, but also the desire for justice. We long to see the gospel go to the end of the world, don't we? At the same time, we don't want evil to prosper. We want justice to be done. It's a tension we have to live with here below. But in heaven, that will be resolved, won't it? It'll be resolved. There, the justice of God will bring great joy 
to our hearts. There we will understand what David said in Psalm 139. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? Am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. And so it's good, it's good that this multitude, this countless multitude cries out, hallelujah, as they watch the Lord judging the enemies of his Christ. But this brings us, doesn't it, to a question for ourselves. When we think about this, we look into the future, as this passage does, and we see this justice of God, what kind of reaction, what kind of reaction do we have in our hearts? Do we sing hallelujah to our God for this future justice? Do we long for that day? The psalmist certainly did. John did. The crowds did. Do we? Or do we react in a wrong way? Do we react by saying something like this? Well, I see the need for some justice in the world. There's some really bad men out there. There's the Hitlers of the world, the Stalins of the world. There's evil politicians. There's abortion doctors. There's some people who should get judged. But as I look at this world, I actually think there's a lot of nice people. And I don't really see a need for this justice of God. Why does God have to judge the world? Well, I think if we say our answer in this kind of way, then we need to get a better grip on the atrocity, on the heinousness of rebellion and sin in our own hearts too against God. Sin requires justice. Sin cries out with its mouth, if you will, for God to judge it. And we ought to rejoice when sin is judged. Or maybe your reaction is not this, but you're in a place in your life where you look out on the world and you are overwhelmed with the injustices in your life, maybe, or in the lives of others. And you begin to complain against the tarrying of God in bringing his justice. Maybe with, with Asaph in Psalm 73, you feel as, as though your feet are about to slip off the path as you behold the prosperity of the wicked while you yourself are struggling. Well, if you're in this kind of place this evening, can I call you to look past these dark clouds in your life to the final justice of God? One day, all things will be made right. All injustices will be made just. God will make all things well. This is the first alleluia over the justice of God. But then look in verse 5 of the second alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. Well, this great sea of voices has been rising towards God. But all of a sudden, in this verse, in verse 5, we see there's a second voice that appears, if you will, on this divine heavenly stage. It's a new voice. And it comes, we read, from the throne of God. And what does it say? Does it say to the crowds to, to quiet down? To stop making such a racket? No. 
the voice cries out for them to increase their praise, to raise the level of praise. And how do the crowds respond? Do they say, we're getting tired of singing the praises of God? Sometimes we get tired, don't we, of singing? But they didn't. How did they respond? Verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. This voice from within the throne was almost like a good choir director, drawing these crowds to higher and higher levels of praise. And so their voices are crashing together in this crescendo of glorious praise to God. And again, there's that one word, isn't there? Alleluia, praise to our God. Here this crowd, I think we can say accurately, reaches the peak, reaches the peak of human vocabulary. I don't know if you can think of a more fitting word to say than hallelujah, praise to our God. And so we can ask ourselves a question, can't we? How often do we do what this crowd is doing here? How often do we let this justice of God, the righteousness of God, pull from us? Hallelujahs to God. Well, maybe you answer as I have to answer many times that I don't do this very well or very often. But that raises the question, why? Why is our praise so stunted? Why are our hearts not filled with greater glory when it comes to praising our God? Well, let me suggest to you that the two main reasons that we fail to praise God with full, full hearts of joy is for the two reasons that the crowd gives for their praise in our verses. Look at verse, the end of verse 6. Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. So why are they singing hallelujah? Because God reigns. Because God reigns. This is one of the greatest comforts, isn't it? One of the greatest spurs to praise in the Christian's life. Not that God has given them the reins of their life. Not that God has given them the power to manipulate their lives such that they can get whatever they want. But when we are in Christ, we cry out in praise because the Lord God reigns. God reigns. And so we can say that there's nothing that frees an anxious Christian more to sing God's praises than to know deep in their hearts that God reigns, that God is in control, that all is well no matter the storms because the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And so can I ask you today, what is it in your life that might stunt your praise? What is it that stunts my praise? Is it worries about your family, worries about money, relational difficulties, passing of a loved one, worries about sickness in your own life, the state of politics in this country, circumstances of this last week, circumstances of the week to come. What is it? Whatever it is, if we are in Christ, God will one day take us, as it were, by the hand and teach us to sing with all of our hearts this one word, hallelujah, 
Why? Because the Lord God omnipotent reigns. But then they give a second reason, don't they? In fact, it's a a, a three-part second reason. Look at verse 7. For, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. Now, what does this mean? Well, let's think for a minute about our own marriages. In many ways, our weddings today aren't so different from their weddings back then in terms of the fundamental principles. So think about our own weddings for a minute. Marriage and weddings are a time of great excitement, aren't they? A time of preparation. The couple gets engaged. The venue becomes booked. The, the suits and the dresses are picked or, 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 or made. And all these things get together, are formed and chosen and, and, and the excitement grows and grows and grows and grows until finally, until finally, the wedding day comes. The wedding day comes. And that's precisely, that's precisely what's happening in this passage. How many years ago was it that Christ came and paid the price for his bride? It's been 2,000 plus years. But this chapter is pointing us to when that wedding day finally comes. Whenever that may be. Tomorrow, we don't know. A thousand years, we don't know. But the wedding day of the Lamb in this passage has finally come. That excitement has grown to a crescendo for the marriage of the Lamb is come. But then that's not the only thing that is raising their hearts in praise. Look at the second part. And his wife hath made herself ready. And his wife hath made herself ready. We know about weddings, don't we? The wedding day comes. The groom is standing up at the front with his groomsmen, the pastor, likely. I don't know how you do it here exactly, but something like that. And the clock hits the time for the bride to walk in. What would happen if no bride came and the clock was five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes, an hour? The bride wasn't ready. She didn't come. Or if the bride showed up and was dressed in everyday clothing, embarrassing but here in this passage that's not what happens the bride is ready the bride hath made herself ready and how how does the bride of christ make herself ready well to draw from christ's parables in the gospels the bride of christ will be ready like householders ready for the return of their master servants who have the house already or they will be like virgins prepared for the return of the bridegroom or servants who have taken the talents that Christ has given them and used them faithfully. So Christ's bride will be ready when he returns. They will be busy fighting sin. They won't be lazy Christians. They won't be perfect Christians, no. But they will be putting to death sin. They will be, if I can put it this way, dressing themselves in the righteousness of Christ. And maybe you hear this and you say, well, I listen to the justice of God and I think about the holiness that that wedding will be comprised of and I think about the righteousness of Christ and I know, I know, I'm not ready. I'm not ready for that day. I know that if I showed up on that day, I would be removed from the wedding. I'd be wearing my own garments of righteousness. And so maybe you fear. You say, what do I do? What do I do? Well, listen with me to the, fir- the third part of this motivation for our second hallelujah. Verse 8. To her, 
as the bride of Christ, to her was granted, to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now to return to the wedding analogy. In our weddings, we are the ones who pick the suits. We are the ones who pick the dresses. Maybe we even make them. We buy them. We're the ones who do it. But there's a radical difference, isn't there, between our weddings and Christ's weddings. In our weddings, we do it, but in Christ's wedding. In Christ's wedding, he's the one. He's the one who makes those wedding clothes. You can't buy those wedding clothes, can you? You can't design them. You can't make them. These clothes we just read in our text, I emphasize the word, these clothes are granted. They're granted. They're given to us by Christ. We might say that these clothes are designed by Christ. They're purchased by Christ. They're made by Christ. And they are not sold by Christ. They are given by Christ freely, without cost. You cannot buy your salvation. The wedding dress of Christ, the wedding garments of Christ are given free of charge. Not a penny. Not a penny. It's free. Now, as we think about that, we know, don't we, that we are naturally such proud, proud people. The natural response to this good news is not, yes, give it to me. The natural response is, no, thank you. I will make my own garments. I will make my own clothes. I will present before the king my own righteousness. That's our natural reaction, isn't it? Because of the covenant of works, because of the fall. And yet scripture teaches us, doesn't it? That there's no way that we can get it through our own works. We just can't do it. We can't make the garments that we need for that wedding. There's no way. There's nothing white enough on this earth to present before God in heaven. So scripture teaches us that it's only through the path of humility, the path of self-abhorrence, the path of confession of sins, and the path of laying hold of the free gift of Jesus Christ by faith that we can be presentable on that wedding day. And so this second motivation for this second alleluia really is one that flows out from hearts that have realized the grace of God in Jesus Christ. They've realized that their righteousness is only in Christ. They look outside of themselves. And they realize that the righteousness of sanctification that they have is not really their own, but it's Christ's. And this brings from their heart, doesn't it? This grand hallelujah. Well, maybe you're convinced here this evening that you need You need this wedding garment of Christ's righteousness. You need it. But you don't know this Christ himself. You're unfamiliar with him. And if this is you, let me take you in verses 11 through 13 to the hallelujah worthy one. Our last point. The hallelujah worthy one. If you're following along in your Bibles, you will have noticed perhaps that all the way up until the end of verse 8, There's one word that is repeated. It's a word of hearing. John hears this. There was a great noise, a great voice. Someone cried this. It's all words of hearing. But then in verse 11, in verse 11, 
suddenly, everything changes. No longer is John just seeing. No longer is John just hearing. He begins to see. What does he say? Verse 11, I saw heaven opened. I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. What was really revealed now to John's eyes is what we could call the epicenter of heaven. The fulcrum of heaven. The focal point of all of heaven. Job, many years earlier, declared when God appeared finally to him that he had heard of God with the hearing of the ear. But then what does he say? That now my eye has seen you and I abhor myself in dust and in ashes. And John had the same thing happening here. He had heard of God with the hearing of the ear. But now his eyes are opened. He saw this glorious one of all of heaven. He had been hearing those hallelujahs with his ear turned towards heaven, if you will, but now he saw him. He saw him with his own eyes. Now we know, don't we, the Christmas story? How Jesus Christ came to earth, children, you remember this? Born in a manger. Almost no one knew. Humble. His glory was veiled. And yet, when Christ comes the second time, when he comes the second time, there will be no veiling of the glory of God. It'll be an unveiled picture of God himself in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that day? When Christ returns the second time, however God's going to work it, all the people on this globe, on this earth, will have one vision filling their eyes and it will be Jesus Christ. It will be Jesus Christ. He will come riding, we read here, on a white horse, symbolizing purity, symbolizing perfection, symbolizing power. And his name will be called Faithful, Faithful and True. And his judgment will be full of righteousness. And if we have placed our trust in Jesus Christ here this evening, then Jesus Christ will appear, won't he, on that horse. And we will marvel not only at his justice, but also at the fact that he is ours. He is our Savior. He is the one who died for us, who paid the justice of God for us. And we will rejoice. We will rejoice with joy unspeakable, full of glory, We can't even figure out the words to explain how glorious that day will be. So if you are a believer here this evening, look forward to that day. Don't get too mired in all these things of life. Lift your eyes upwards to that Jesus Christ. He will return one day, and then you will be glad. You will rejoice. But if you are not in Christ, if you are not in Christ, then what a terrible picture that will be. Jesus Christ riding on his war horse, a just God, ready to take just vengeance on all those who would not submit to his righteousness. And if that day comes and you still have not turned to Jesus Christ, you will stand speechless before your judge. You won't be able to figure out any excuses worth saying to him 
In fact, the scripture records that you will cry out for the mountains to fall upon you. That's how bad it's going to be. And scripture also teaches that Jesus Christ will greet you. He will greet you. You will see him on that day. But he will not greet you with joy. He will say to you, depart from me. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. What words we will hear on that day if we are not in Christ. And we will be led away, won't we? To a place where there will be no more joy, no more sunshine, no more enjoyment of the small things of life, no more fun times with friends, young people, no more time with family. You won't even enjoy something as good as a cup of coffee on a cold day. You won't enjoy that nice fall morning. You won't enjoy that drive in the car. All the joys of earth will be ripped away and you will be in torment. And you cannot say you weren't told. You will have to say, I was told, I knew it all along. But I paid attention to the empty things of this world. I ignored my parents, perhaps. I ignored the word of God. What was I doing? What was I doing? And yet the wonderful thing, the wonderful thing about this moment right now is that if you're in this place where the justice of God should come down upon you, you are yet free, are you not? God has given you this day, a day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation, the scriptures say. Don't push it off till tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Just rest your trust in him. He will not fail you. You will find then when you do that, that this righteous judge who you fear so much all of a sudden becomes your righteous savior. The one who has paid for your sins. The one who has washed you clean. The one who drapes over your shoulders, if you will, the wedding garments of Jesus Christ. And you will never have to fear again. You will live a fear-free life. At least you ought to. And one day you will be brought into a fear-free eternity, full of the glory of God. And you will be able to say what Paul said, that this is a faithful saying. This is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, of whom I am the foremost. And you will rejoice. You will rejoice. So can I ask you here this evening, do you fear death? Do you? But Jesus Christ has destroyed death. Do you, do you fear your sin within you? The sin that keeps on coming out and eating you up? But Jesus Christ has taken care of sin. Do you fear an eternity of pain, an eternity of darkness, an eternity without the light of the sun? Do you fear that? Well, come to the one who has taken all those things and banished them through his life, through his death. And do you fear the great judge of your heart? Do you fear the one who speaks in your conscience and convicts you of sin? Well, then come to Jesus Christ, the judge, and he will become your savior. And when you place your trust in Jesus Christ, yes, the Christian life will be full of ups and downs. Those of us who are Christians know that. We go through times of backsliding, times of sin. And yet, what does the scripture say? 
They that trust in the Lord, Psalm 125, they that trust in the Lord will be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed. It's impossible. It cannot be removed, but abideth forever. It abideth forever. That's our confidence. We will be firm when we've rested in Jesus Christ. And so in closing, I want to ask each of you this important question, this most important question. Have you come? Have you come to this Jesus Christ? And have you traded in all your dirty clothes of righteousness for his beautiful and spotless clothes of righteousness? Have you asked him, Lord, give me what I need to be dressed for that great day, that wedding day of the Lamb? And maybe you answer me and you say, I I, I want to do this. I want to do this, but I I fear that the Lord will not give it to me if if I ask him. I fear he won't give it to me. I'm such a sinner. I'm so stubborn. I'm so rebellious. Why would God listen to me? Well, can I direct you back to the words of our text? To her was granted. That word is a wonderful word. Granted is another word for given. It's free. There's no cost to it. And it was purchased by Jesus Christ for sinners just like you. Dark, miserable sinners. That's everyone in this room who knows the Lord Jesus Christ and themselves. They're no holier than you. That's the righteousness of Christ. It's freely granted. It's freely given. Just a few chapters later, near the end of the book, we read these incredible words. And and keep in mind that we often save the most important things for last. And here God, at the very end of his word, says these words. He says, the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, and the bride is the church. Say, come. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Do you wish it? Do you wish it? Take it. Take it. It's free in Jesus Christ. He desires for you to take it. You can't offer him anything. You can only say, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Think also of this picture in Christ's words himself. He gives that picture, doesn't he, of the child who comes to the parent and asks of the parent a piece of bread. And Jesus' remark is, do you think that that parent is going to give him a stone if he asks for bread? What about you parents? Would you give your child a stone? Of course not. And Jesus says, how much more, how much more will my heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of salvation to those who ask for it? That's how free it is. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And when you do this, do it and then come to the Lord Jesus Christ with open hands. Say with that hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And can I say one more time, just one more time, if you're a procrastinator, Don't wait until it's too late. It's free now. One day you will never be able to have it. 
Do it today. Do it today. Today is the day of salvation. But then let me also end with a question to those of you who do know the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you who read these words and you think, wow, I get to take part in this. Can I ask you, have you been preparing? Have you been preparing for that great day? You know, when we have an important event, think of a music recital, we spend a long time preparing, don't we, to get everything just right. Well, can I ask you, are you tuning your hearts? Are you tuning your hearts to sing God's praise here below so that you are ready when that day comes to shout out with that great crowd, hallelujah, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Well, my prayer is that each one here this evening will be ready. They will be ready for that great day with Christ's righteousness and hearts ready to sing his praises. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Gracious and merciful God and our Father in heaven, the Alleluia worthy one, Father, what sinners we are. We are nothing in ourselves, but you, Lord, are holy. Thou art righteous. Thou art worthy to receive blessing and honor and glory and power. Move our hearts, Lord. Move our hearts for the first time or yet again to confess our own unrighteousness and to cling to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then to go about living as faithful servants, waiting for the return of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive, O Lord, our sins of this hour. Bless us also in the rest of this evening and in the week to come. May thy spirit be our guide and our companion along this, this road that we walk. Be with the morning, Lord, and be with those also who rejoice. Bring us together at the throne of grace also this next Lord's Day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll sing now from Psalter 124, verses 1 through 5 and 9.